1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through X.
0: Real love is
2: calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. But now it's some bad reflection on God, because here's the deal. Jesus says to him, As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. You know how much longer it's going to be before he gets to Rome? Two years. Two years. Not two days. Not two hours. Not two minutes. Two years. Sometimes when God says stuff to us, we have to be patient and trust him. It doesn't always happen immediately. It doesn't always happen tomorrow.
1: Has God given to you a promise that you feel has not been met? In today's message from Pastor Gary, he points out from Scripture the importance of patiently waiting on the Lord. When God gives you a word, it doesn't always happen immediately. Pastor Gary explains that God may give you a knowing of something, but it might be years before it comes to pass. Either way, trust that God is on His throne and that your life is in His hands. He cares way more about your future than even you do. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Acts chapter 23 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: In Titus 1.15, it talks about a corrupted conscience and then the worst kind is 1 Timothy 4.2, where Paul refers to a seared conscience. And this is when you repeatedly go against your conscience of what you know would be wrong, but you just deny it, I'm just going to do it anyway. And it is possible to get to the place where your conscience becomes seared and may be seared entirely or sometimes just seared in a particular area because you've done it over and over again. The idea behind something that is seared it becomes dead when you uh, cauterize something you know you're searing it so that it'll become dead i i was one of these kids i'm a lot healthier as an adult than i was as a kid i mean i was i was just sick all the time it was just allergies and sinuses and ear infections and adenoids and tonsils i'm not making this up i had my tonsils out twice as a kid twice I said is that even possible yeah your tonsils can grow back i can testify to it so I had my tonsils, I was like three, and then my tonsils grew back, I had them out again when I was like 10. And I had, I had, I had uh, tubes put in my ears, I don't know how many times, adenoids cut out. I mean, I was a, just a total mess. Allergy shots, I was just terrible. So thankfully, God's grace over the years, you know, you kind of outgrow some of that. But I was a mess growing up. So here's, here's what I had to have done, because I kept getting these throat infections constantly. So I had this awesome ear, nose, and throat doctor, all right, from Germany, Dr. Hans Scheidemandel. <laughs> now, a few months ago, there, there's another ENT, another ear nose and throat, the doctor who goes to our church, and uh, he retired now, and I was mentioning to him my ENT, and he goes, "I'm best friends. He's Greek, and he says, "I'm best friends with Hans Scheidermandel." so like he's still alive. I don't even know he's still alive." Anyway, I digress, but here's what he had to do. He had to cauterize the back of my throat so it wouldn't keep getting infections. So you know he had to you know, like burn off all the tissue through the back of my throat. I, you can actually see through the back of my head right now, right? There's, there's a hole. There's a hole through the back here. Anyway, it was not a pleasant experience. I can't taste anything anymore. Now that isn't true either, but it sounds worse than it really is. Like I have a bunch of scar tissue now in the back of my throat. You would never know it, when you saw the back of my throat. But, but it's I, I will never forget it though. It was it was an experience I will never forget. You have like hot solution burning the back of your throat. You're not going to forget it. I'll be fine. I'm working through it. (laughs) I did get him back because now this is going to date me. How many of you remember glass thermometers? Let me see, glass thermometers. Wow, we got an old group here. (laughs) And and I put that thing in. He put that thing in my mouth, and I'm just so tired of that thermometer in my mouth. I just chewed it and I broke it anyway. I couldn't feel a thing. My throat was cauterized, but anyhow, um, that's the idea. When you have something that is seared or burned, or those of you who work construction, you're using your hands all the time, you get calluses, you don't feel anymore anything. You don't feel pain, you don't feel anything where the callus is or where it was seared because it's been it's been deadened. And that is the worst place to be when it comes to your conscience, is to have a dead conscience. Don't don't feel badly if sometimes you have a guilty conscience. That's a good thing, friends. That's the way that the Lord gets our attention about something that is wrong. It's a built-in mechanism. It's a God-awareness. Now, understand, everybody's born with a conscience. You don't have to become a Christian in order to get a conscience. Everybody has a conscience when they're born. What happens is, and what's the difference then between a conscience and the Holy Spirit? The difference is that the conscience is what we're all born with. It is it is a, a moral compass. It is an internal mechanism, a God-awareness and a self-awareness. When you become a Christian, what happens is the Holy Spirit heightens your conscience so that now you have a more sensitive conscience than you ever did before because the Spirit of God within you bears witness to what is right and wrong. And so then you become even more aware of right and wrong, more sensitive to it instead of desensitized to it. But there is, of course, a small percentage of the world population that... Um, over a variety of reasons and factors that can contribute to it, somebody actually has no conscience at all. They're, they're otherwise known as a psychopath or a sociopath by medical diagnosis. Someone doesn't have a conscience. Someone just does whatever they want, and they have no remorse, they have no guilt, they have no shame, they just do whatever they want. And some of the most horrible criminals in our culture are sociopaths and psychopaths. You know, in the 1900s, when um, conscience and the lack of conscience was being diagnosed, in the early 1900s, it used to be called psychopathic personality. Uh, Psychopathic, sorry, psychopathic. It is not kind of pathetic, but (laughs) psychopathic personality. But check this out. In the 1830s, when the problem was first diagnosed of a person who was absent a conscience, in the 1830s, it was first called moral insanity. That's really what it is. It's moral insanity because the moral compass is broken. So God has given you a conscience. Don't violate it. And when you become a Christian, it becomes even more heightened. Don't violate it. Because if, if we repeatedly violate our conscience, that internal mechanism of this isn't right, and you, sh- you should feel uncomfortable when you're doing something that isn't right, Okay, don't violate it because if you continue over long periods of time to violate your conscience, you will eventually become so desensitized to it, you you won't recognize it anymore as wrong. So be thankful that God has given you a conscience. It's God's way of helping you to know what is right and wrong instinctively and intuitively. So Paul gets up here and he talks about his conscience. It's the first thing that he says here uh, to, to the Sanhedrin. I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Verse 2, he says that this, the high priest Ananias, now this is not to be confused with Annas, who was the high priest in Jesus' day. This is Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Go ahead and hit him. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. (laughs) You whitewashed wall. I mean, it's just, you know, basically calling them a tomb that, you know, you're, you're, you look nice on the outside, but you're corrupt on the inside. All right. God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall? You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Here's a violation of the law. Deuteronomy 25, 2. Deuteronomy 25, 2 says that a man was not to be beaten until he was convicted. And here, Paul was being beaten, and he was ordered by the high priest to be beaten in violation of Deuteronomy 25.2. Paul knew it, because he knows the scriptures. He's like, you're a hypocrite. You you just had me beaten against the law of God, and you're worrying about whether or not I've violated the law of God. Well, verse 4 says, those who were standing near Paul said, you dare, you dare to insult God's high priest? and Paul replied brothers i did not realize that he was the high priest for it is written do not speak evil about the ruler of your people now he's applying scripture to himself he's quoting out of exodus 22 um now the question becomes why did he say this you know why if if he was in fact a member of the sanhedrin and even if he wasn't a member of the sanhedrin which i believe that he was but even if he wasn't he was educated in, in, in the ways of judaism under the tutelage of gamaliel okay he's very scholarly Paul knows Jewish law, Jewish customs, Jewish everything. Why is it that he would not recognize the high priest? The guy with the big high ha- hat, that's the high priest, Paul. Why did not he recognize him? There's actually some reasons why perhaps he, he did not. And I'm just going to give them to you. We don't know for sure. But here's number one. Could be from poor eyesight because of his injuries. That part is true. Paul said in Galatians 6, near the end of his letter to the Galatians, he said, I write to you with large letters with my own hand. And that's an indication of probably the eye injuries because he was beaten on many occasions, left for dead on a few occasions. And it is believed that Paul sustained some pretty significant eye injuries. That even it's possible when he even prayed in Corinthians to the Lord to take this thorn from his flesh. Some believe he's referencing to his own to his own physical impairment with his eyesight. But that's when the Lord said, "My grace is sufficient for you, for in your weakness, my power is made perfect." So, whatever that thorn, we can debate all that. You know, a messenger from Satan. Who knows exactly what that is? But there's enough. Again. Um, basis to believe that he had some pretty significant injuries. So maybe his eyesight was better. He didn't realize that this was the high priest. There's a second reason, perhaps, because the high priest was not acting like one. He had violated due process from Deuteronomy 25, 2, And so basically, Paul was being sarcastic. That's possible. The high priest said, strike him in the mouth. So Paul's like, I'm not going to treat you like a high priest because you're not acting like one. You're violating scripture. It's possible that he was sarcastic. I would like to think that that is possible because sarcasm is funny to me but anyway maybe it shouldn't be it just is i'm just fascinated you uh number 3 this is also a reason um because literally when he says their brothers i did not realize the literal translation can be read i did not consider and in other words paul was being impulsive most bible scholars believe that that's actually the the right answer that he He didn't consider that he was the high priest because he was just being impulsive by what he said when he called him a whitewashed tomb. And so, well, I don't know. Was he being sarcastic? Was he being impulsive? Maybe he couldn't even see. Nobody knows. But uh, he does correct it. And so that's the important thing. And he even quotes scripture realizing I might be disrespected, but that doesn't give me liberty to disrespect back. You could probably apply that somewhere in your life. I'm sure it's a good thing for us to see. Verse 6, and here's where it gets brilliant, okay? Notice what he does here. Verse 6, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Now that's key right there, underline that. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Verse 7 says, when he said this, A dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And verse 8 tells us, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Okay? So Paul knows this. Paul knows Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in demons. They don't believe in angels. And so Paul, knowing this, He's going to pit the Sadducees against the Pharisees. So he announces, he goes, you know, I'm a Pharisee. I'm of the party of the Pharisees, okay? And I'm standing here before you because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Now he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus, but this is going to spark the controversy because the Sadducees are like, what are you talking about, resurrection of the dead? There is no such thing. And then the Pharisees are like, yes, there is. Sadducees say, no, they're not. And Paul's just standing back. He's like, this is terrific. You know, you guys go at it at each other. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 9. There was a great uproar. And some of them and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. He's a fellow Pharisee, right? What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Well, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. All right. So it worked. It worked because Paul standing there was on trial for the moment. And when he got them disagreeing with each other, they start, you know, attacking each other. There's this whole mob thing. And Paul is rescued by the Romans again, taken off to the barracks. Okay. So end of the little court scene here for the moment. But look at verse 11. It says, the following night, the Lord, this is Jesus, stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So. You must also testify in Rome. Now, a couple of things to point out here. First of all, there are times in Scripture we see an angel appear to people and to comfort. In fact, there's going to be a, a time further in the book of Acts when Paul is in a shipwreck on his way to Rome, and it talks about how an angel visited him. This is one of these rare cases when the Lord himself appeared to Paul. And I'm convinced it's because this is probably one of, if not the lowest points in Paul's life. You know, Jesus doesn't just indiscriminately show up places. These are very purposeful encounters. And for the Lord Jesus himself to visit Paul like this and to say to him, it's okay, take courage, be encouraged. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. It it indicates this is probably one of the low points in Paul's life. Even the Apostle Paul can get at a low point. Low points are common in our lives. Low points happen to good, godly people who love Jesus. They just do. And I want you to be aware of something else here too. And this kind of confronts our... Um, taste for the instantaneous, okay? Our taste for the instantaneous in this culture is wonderful, but at the same time, it can be very detrimental because we get so used to this instant, you know, I want want something now, that sometimes it's hard for us to realize that God doesn't always work that way. And so waiting becomes sometimes painful for us because we're so used to everything now. You know, if the, if your internet is slow, it makes you upset. I want this to get downloaded now. If you're going through the drive-thru at pick whatever, McDonald's, Burger King, whatever your favorite little burger joint is, and it's not fast enough, you get mad. If the microwave is taking longer than it should, you get mad because we're so used to everything being fast and instant and at the moment you tweet it out it's now around the world you know email it's there in a millisecond it's around the world and with god he doesn't quite always work like that and we have to be always very careful not to be rushing or feeling like it's got to happen now and that if it doesn't happen now it's some bad reflection on god because here's the deal jesus says to him as you've test about me testified about me in jerusalem so you must also testify about me in Rome. You know how much longer it's going to be before he gets to Rome? Two years. Two years. Not two days. Not two hours. Not two minutes. Two years. Sometimes when God says stuff, stuff to us, we have to be patient and trust him. Doesn't always happen immediately. It Doesn't always happen tomorrow. It's going to be two years before Paul gets to Rome. Now, I hate to tell you the rest of it, but when he finally gets to Rome and testifies about Jesus, then he's going to be beheaded. But that's for another day. Um, so it, it also works out in a long run for eternal purposes, but it's going to be two years before he even gets to Rome. So just kind of tuck that away. Remember, God doesn't always work by our timetable. So here's what happens. So he's still in Jerusalem for the time being. How's he going to get to Rome? The Lord doesn't even fill him in on all that, because right now he's temporarily imprisoned at least. Verse 12 says, the next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. They're, they obviously are going to have to undo their oath because it's going to be two more years before he dies. But um. Verse 15, now then you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. Okay, so there's this little conspiracy going on between the Jewish Sanhedrin and a few zealous Jews who hate Paul and they want to kill him. So you got 40 zealous Jews. They go to the Sanhedrin. They work on this little conspiracy. We're going to kill him. Why don't you ask the commander for more information when he comes out? We'll kill him. All right? Well, verse 16, but when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Okay? So there's, there's a nephew that Paul has here. By the way, this is the only mention of Paul's family in the New Testament, that he has a sister and he has a nephew. We know that much. That's the only other reference to any family of Paul's in the entire New Testament. So we don't know how, we don't know how old the nephew is. Probably younger than a teenager, all right? So, preteen, somewhere in there, perhaps. He overhears this and he rushes over to the barracks where Paul is in prison and he tells him. And then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. And then verse 23, then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and another 200 spearmen. How many total? 470. All right, good. Just making sure you're awake. 470. Some are like, is this a trick? I don't really know. What's the answer to this? Just just add up the math. I'm just wanting you to engage. All right, so 470 soldiers to protect Paul against 40 who are going to ambush, 40 Jews who are going to ambush him. Now, listen, note this, okay, because again, I love the way that God sometimes does his great work in our lives very naturally. Sometimes we always look for the supernatural. Do you know that God can use natural means to minister to us, take care of us, provide for us? That's what he's doing here. Could God have sent an angel to destroy 40 people? Sure he could have. That would have been a supernatural way. But how did God choose to do it? He dispatched 470 Roman soldiers total to help protect Paul. Look for God in the natural ways, not only in the supernatural ways. Because God works in both ways. So, off they go. Verse 24. Provide mounts for Paul. This is the commander speaking. Provide mounts for Paul, horses for Paul, so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. All right, now we're introduced to a new character that we're going to see for the next couple of chapters here, at least for all of chapter 24. Um, Governor Felix, uh, let, me, let me read the letter that goes to Governor Felix, and then we'll talk about him. But, uh, but right now, get the cat out of your head. Just get that out of your head. Felix. Now he's in there. <laughs> Verse 25, he wrote a letter as follows. Here's the letter. Claudius Lysias, that's the name of the commander sending it, to his excellency, Governor, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Now, <laughs> some of this isn't exactly accurate. You know, I mean, he's, he, he had him beaten first, and then he realized he was a Roman citizen. Oh, Sorry. But he's making it sound really good here. Okay, verse 28. I wanted, I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. Find the your connection, run towards
1: your new life. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hammer. Pastor Gary's been going through the book of Acts. If you missed any part of this message, you can hear it again on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You might want to download our mobile app, so you have these teachings with you on the go. That way, you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Simply look under the Teachings tab. While you're there, feel free to take some time to learn about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd be happy to meet you. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other info on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We hope and pray you've been blessed by today's teaching in the book of Acts. Keep reading on your own in this book and discover so many inspiring and motivating things. Pastor Gary will continue teaching about the amazing acts done by God and His Spirit on our next edition of Cornerstone Connection.